Good evening, everybody, and welcome to, uh, I think, the seventh episode of Psyched Podcast, School Psyched Podcast. We're very excited here. Uh, tonight, we're going to be talking about autism, assessment, evaluation, and uh, strategies. We want to remind everybody that this isn't, we don't want this to be a lecture format. We definitely want participation from the youth, the audience. Rebecca's going to talk a little bit about how to do that. So we want questions. We want just comments on how you do things, how you do autism evaluations, interventions that you find uh, to be helpful and useful with your students. So definitely want that collaboration. My name is Rachel, and I'm an NCSP currently working in the state of Texas. Anna? I'm Anna, school psychologist working in Western New York. And Rebecca? Hi, I'm Rebecca, and I'm a school psychologist working in Connecticut. I want to tell you guys about how to participate. Um, you can please, please comment on either of the Facebook pages, either School Psych, your school psychologist page. I get the notifications. You can post a page, or you can comment under the last thing that I posted, which was about evidence-based practices, um, or you can comment on the School Site podcast page. And again, you can comment anywhere. You can post to page, or you can comment under the last thing um, that I posted, or on Twitter using the hashtag Site Podcast. Anna? We had a, a little poll on our event page. Thank you guys for participating. We had lots of good participation. Oh, what should we talk about? Sorry, this is Peaches. <laughs> <laughs> what should we talk about um, in regards to autism? And we want to hear from from you, fellow psychs and educators out there, on what we should focus on. And the top pick was discussing the process process of classifying students with autism. You know, whether or not they have a medical diagnosis. How do we go about giving them the educational classification? And number two, closely behind that, at nine votes, was counseling interventions for high functioning students. Uh, at eight votes, we have reviewing evaluation tools, which we're going to do. And seven votes is researching effective interventions, and five votes is working with low-functioning students in the counseling role. So we're going to try and touch on everything that you guys voted for. Thank you for participating. And um, the first, we're going to have Rebecca review just the DSM-5 diagnostic criteria. Okay, so I did also post on the Psyched podcast page a link from Autism Speaks about um, the DSM-5 criteria. I'm trying to scroll down and make sure that I did that, but I'm pretty sure that I did. I posted toolkits. Yes, there it is, and the um, DSM-5 diagnostic criteria. So what, what I found interesting about the difference between DSM-4 and DSM-5 was that um, in the DSM-5, there's also a diagnosis of social pragmatic communication disorder, and that is, um, it's, it's similar in many ways to, uh, the, the diagnostic criteria are similar in many ways to the autism spectrum disorder um, diagnostic criteria except for um, without repetitive behaviors or restricted interests. And interestingly, Autism Speaks found that 22% of the children that were in the DSM-4 would have been diagnosed with pervasive developmental disorder, NOS, would now receive a diagnosis of SCD. Mm -hmm. So that was interesting. And um, the do you, you guys don't want me to read the all of the criteria, do you? <laughs> I no, but 
But the cool thing, well, the interesting thing is Asperger's. I've got my, my Asperger's diagnostic scale and Asperger's disorder scale here. Asperger's. Uh, right. I was in the library the other day, and they have an all cats have Asperger's book that I saw on the shelf that was written in Australia. Asperger's is done. PDD NOS is done, right? And yeah. now we have this autism in varying degrees. Varying degrees, yeah. Sure, a big shift too. I mean, as far as um, like the Asperger's community, um, mm -hmm. I know that I think the recommendation from APA was that they go on, you know, referring to themselves kind of um, with that term that you know we're not just going to totally drop it, although it's not in the DSM. So I thought that, that was interesting. You know, um, Asperger's kind of advocacy groups and community interaction groups and things like that. Um, you know, it's kind of like. This was the label before, and now, nope, it's gone. So. so they're kind of grandfathered. They're grandfathered in if they, if they prefer, if they prefer that old, the old classification. It is interesting. And we were talking about earlier, just the three of us, how there are so many um, layers of just personal feelings from parents and different advocacy groups have different opinions on how to um, talk about children with autism and how to um, describe you know interventions and they're so they're so personal for example on one article I posted the article specifically in the title said autistic children and somebody commented underneath that she much prefers the, a person first a person's focused um, label like children with autism and I agree but then somebody else said that certain groups purposely use autistic children and I'm not sure why there must be maybe a philosophical or political reason for that do you guys do you guys know maybe one of our listeners does though yes, <laughs> yes, I mean, yes, yes, yes. Page if you do know um, so you know when kids come to us they're in school typically I don't know if you guys have worked in preschool settings, I haven't, um, but sometimes it's that early. And then sometimes they're in school age and they're beginning to struggle. Often as they get older, um, things become more complex with education and it's not just rote memorization, but um, you know, school gets harder for kids who think concretely and who have trouble with making inferences and applying knowledge and things like that. So um, we wanted to talk about the process of identifying students as having um, autism as far as qualifying for special education. So um, what have you guys experienced? Rachel, I want to go to you because you've worked in like three different states or four, including the school you went to. Four, you've been in four different states. You've gotten around. <laughs> and um, so, so what have you, what have you yeah. experienced? I mean, it's kind of interesting because last, uh, last podcast we talked about learning disabilities and how that really varies state by state and nobody really knows what LT is. I think we're a little bit better off uh, with the autism category, most people kind of subscribe, even though um, even different states have different criteria for sure. But I think that it's full sites as a whole, we're not putting anybody in that category unless we feel that they're truly under that kind of DSM diagnosis or that we kind of interact with that child and feel that they're on the spectrum um, and kind of trusting our gut opinions um, in addition to the diagnostic criteria. Um, I'm in Texas right now, and the criteria has um, three, there's three prongs there um, that, that a child needs to qualify under. Uh, one, that there's a developmental disorder with verbal communication, mm -hmm. developmental disorder with nonverbal communication, and then um, a 
disorder with uh, social interactions, which I thought was interesting because the repetitive behaviors piece, which is in the DSM and in other state criteria, is absent. But personally, as a school psychologist, I don't think that I would feel comfortable classifying a, a student under that label here in Texas if there wasn't any type of repetitive, restricted, stereotypical behaviors, interests going on, um, even though technically, I guess they could by Texas criteria. Um, in North Carolina, where I was there, there was four uh, areas, and you had to have three out of the four, the first being deficit in communication, deficit in social interaction, deficit in stereotypic repetitive movements or restricted interests, and then um, sensory, which wasn't in the DSM. Um, is sensory added to the DSM-5, Rebecca? Do you happen to know? I know they were talking about that. Deficit social emotional. I know that in the four, it wasn't a criteria, but we know that it is included. Okay, so that has been included. Hyper or hypoactivity to sensory input or unusual interest in sensory aspects of the environment. Adverse responses. Yep. The other thing I was wondering about is I don't know about you guys, but like where I am, a child doesn't need to be diagnosed by an outside medical provider, an MD or anything, to be able to, to be classified as a student with autism um, in special education. So um, that can become really interesting uh, because uh, sometimes, well, sometimes kids have a diagnosis, but then it doesn't adversely impact their education. Have you guys ever seen that, where like there's a diagnosis on paper and maybe the kid doesn't have a lot of trouble or you know need a lot of extra help or anything? And then I've seen too where, where diagnoses have come to me and I've evaluated the kid, you know, independently and I disagree. I, I don't see that they do meet at least the school, um, the, the educational criteria um, for the state type of thing and I just disagree with uh, whatever practitioner diagnosed them and that's a sticky situation too, kind of trying to explain that to a parent that Yes, I know your doctor says that they're on the spectrum, but what we're seeing in school isn't consistent with that. Um, I, I look at, oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, that I've worked in haven't required a medical diagnosis in order to qualify for special education, um, but I, I, I definitely, I mean, it's something that you need to consider for sure when you're evaluating. Right, and I was just reading um, an article from Best Practices, Volume 4, which talked about that a little bit, um, best practices and effective services for young children with ASD. Um, they they talk about the tiered model of intervention that you know because children with autism can look so differently and are so individual and unique that um, addressing their needs on a three tiered three three tiered system is um, probably the most appropriate way to make sure that everyone gets the support that they need. Interestingly also, a Google search um, of autistic spectrum disorder in 2008 um, brought up 18 million hits, but just today I got 74.6 million Google hits just by searching autism. It's definitely growing in, in numbers of people who are, have the diagnosis. There's no no question about that.
Yeah. That's for sure. We, I don't know about you guys, but I mean, I work with people with autism, and I have someone with autism in my family, and so I, I think I see it everywhere. Even, like, you know, you see pieces of it everywhere. You notice it in yourself sometimes, and how you interact with people, and, you know, it, it's hard not to see it these days. Yeah. And it, I think that that's, I mean, the fact that it is so large um, and growing, and I think awareness of, of autism is, is growing, really. And we have so many advocacy groups and parent education groups and things like that, that really, as far as all of our disability categories in the special education realm, yeah. I, I feel like our autism parents are probably our most educated parents about what's going on with their child because there's so many of those advocacy groups and uh, trainings and, and a lot of resources available that they like to connect and collaborate and whatnot together, which I think is really great. And I think that school systems need to probably do a good job of being in touch with those local agencies and those parent support groups and things like that to know what the needs of that community are um, because they are so well connected and um, such great advocators for their their children. I think that school systems need to kind of be aware. We've had in the past kind of um, you know speakers have come to these groups and then maybe something got misinterpreted and the next thing you know we have like a bunch of parents coming to the school saying we need ABA therapists for all or <laughs> you know all of a sudden there's this big push for something and I think that the school system needs to know kind of what their needs are and what they're going to be potentially advocating for so that they can either meet those needs or find a, a different way to meet those needs and just be aware because uh, they're a pretty powerful group and I, I wish that really all of our uh, disability categories and students had kind of that awareness that yeah. um, to have but I think it's good. We have a couple of comments. Um, one was that um, uh, this that they appreciated the link for the evidence-based practice practices that I posted on both the, the Facebook pages, um, and that uh, link came from um, an organization called. Let me see. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to click it to find out the National Professional Development Center, and I found that through Autism Speaks. It was one of the resources that they um, refer people to on their website. But another commenter who um, will hopefully will be our guest on the next podcast um, let me know that the National Autism Center has come out with a new uh, list of evidence-based practices in just in April. So we, have, we do have collections of evidence-based practices, but um, like what you were saying, Rachel, while I was reading that best practices article, they said the school psychologist's actual best position is not to become an expert in all the different um, evidence-based practices, because probably that would be very, very time-consuming and difficult, but, but instead to use our training to evaluate the effectiveness of specific intervention programs. So I guess the, the programs that the school or the district um, provides in terms of professional development or um, specific programs that we feel address the specific child's or population needs. Mm -hmm. but, but there's so much, there's so many um, different interventions out there, more and more and more with growing evidence of effectiveness. It's really, it's hard to 
you know, for example, ABA, it's an entire field of study. So, for it, it, yes, it's an evidence-based practice, but as a school psychologist, how do we effectively create an intervention based on, on that if we don't, you know, if it's not sort of part of our training or professional development? Right. It would be impossible to really implement something ourselves that's something that has to happen at the classroom level and a team that we may consult with, that kind of thing. It's very very challenging for sure. So a child gets referred to a school psychologist, right? There's Maybe there's a diagnosis, maybe there isn't. Um, what would you guys do as far as evaluations to determine what the appropriate educational classification? There are so many different tools out there. Um, we did a poll about um, what evaluation tool do you use? And the number one results was the ADOS 2, Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule. 22 votes for that one. Um, I got to participate in one ADOS when I was an intern. Um, my internship district owned it, but my current district did not, and it requires multiple people to administer and people observing and all that, all that stuff. It's um, kind of difficult. <laughs> have you guys, do you guys have experience with the ADOS? Only in report reading, because when I refer um, children for private evaluations, that's part of a comprehensive evaluation, but they also, also do speech um, evaluations from, with the speech therapist and OT and sometimes PT, so, but that's my experience with it. Rachel, have you, do you have experience with the ADOS? Um, I was involved, I did the ADOS, you know, the original ADOS in internship. Um, when the ADOS 2 came out that my district did offer that, you know, some of us could go, go to a training to do that, and I ended up passing due to some other conflict. But this year I have um, sat in on an ADOS and helped with the scoring and the administration. So, I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with the ADOS. I do know that it is, yeah, it's time-consuming and extra. Um, as far as, okay, so in my last district, um, one of the psychologists, she was an autism specialist in her previous district, so very knowledgeable um, of autism. And her feeling was that ADOS is really one of the few autism full assessments or evaluations as opposed to like a screener, like a, a rating scale of some sort. And basically that that was the gold standard and every evaluation for autism should really have the ADOS. Mm. And I, I can see where she's coming from with that, but at the same time, um, I think I disagree that every child needs that just because it is kind of intensive, and you have some of those kids that walk in, especially the young ones, um, preschool-wise and whatnot, but they walk in the room, and I mean, you can just tell just by a brief interaction that, you know, that's probably what we're dealing with. And so I think that the clear-cut cases, um, I generally wouldn't um, go with an ADOS. I would do kind of like my standard battery type mm -hmm. of thing. But maybe on a case that I'm, I'm in between, because there's certainly a lot of students out there that are kind of a close call, um, the ADOS might be something that's a little bit of a tiebreaker, or at least gives a little bit more information. So I think it's a good okay, time. I'm going to go on to our number two, the Gilliam Autism Rating Scale, the GARS. They're up to the GARS 3. We haven't acquired it yet in my district. We've got the GARS 2. GARS 3 came out in 2015, so maybe you guys have it out there in the world. Um, but you get a year cushion before you get the updated norms and stuff. So um, GARS 2 got, GARS 3, sorry, got 18 votes. Um, I like this one um, for using with parents. I think it's a, a pretty easy one to do. 
And a rating scale, not comprehensive, but... Our number three was the cars. We have two versions of the cars at my work. The high-functioning version and the standard version. I like using the one with teams. Like sitting down with a team of people and just kind of talking about the child. And I like this one. You like it too, Rachel? Yeah, that's how I like to um, do an evaluation. So do my cognitive and educational and all my observations and work with the kid. And have mm -hmm. the speech path doing her evaluations and have an OT doing their evaluations. And then at the end, we all come together and sit down and fill out a cars together based on all that information mm -hmm. um, that we know about that, that child. And I think that it's really informative to have three professionals who have an understanding of autism to be able to fill that out. Oftentimes with the GARS or some of those parent rating scales or teacher rating scales, I find that, yeah, they're not always understanding what exactly some of those items are asking mm -hmm. and do um, kind of find that they tend to be skewed one way or the other. The parent or a teacher already has this impression that, yes, they're definitely autistic, or no, they're definitely not, and that mm -hmm. can kind of influence things. So I, I do like the cards. Cool. Number four, drumroll. The social communication questionnaire got seven votes. Now I'm biased towards this one um, because it is so darn easy. Have you, are you guys familiar with this one? Do you want me to tell you about it? Okay, all right. So it's 40-question questionnaire. There's two versions. The lifetime version, you'd have to give this one to a parent. You know, they're the only ones who know what happened in the child's lifetime, you know, before a certain age. And then there's the um, current questionnaire. This is one you can give to the teacher. Um, and it's just 40 yes or no questions about the child's behavior. Um, the scoring is computer scoring, and it's kind of archaic, and I don't like it. But there's no standard scores or anything. There's just a cutoff score, and it's only for the lifetime. So if they're above the cutoff score, it's, it's a screening measure. Then more information is needing, then they're, show, then they're showing that they have some social communication difficulties and, um, you know, the restrictive, repetitive interests and behaviors and sensory, like, the questions kind of cover everything under the spectrum umbrella. Um, but I really like it because it's easy, and then you're able to really describe in a short summary which behaviors are really observed with this child in a really easy, quick, and dirty way. Um, so I like it. And the other reason I like it is because, I don't know about you guys, but I work with older secondary students. And um, after they age out of high school, often that's at age 21. So they often don't get a diploma, a high school diploma, a regents diploma, whatever you want to call it. And so um, to get services and to be connected beyond 21, um, they have to qualify. And they want, at least where I am, they want evidence. They want assessments. They don't, they don't just rely on, like, a doctor's diagnosis when the kid was five, but they want updated assessments. And so this social communication communication questionnaire is a quick and dirty way um, that they would approve of. So I like it. Anna, can I pop in and just ask you, do any of those that you've spoken about directly line up with, um, like, to inform your interventions? So they have categories of deficits when, when you score them that you can decide where, where the most or the maybe critical areas of intervention might be? The SCQ, Social Communication Questionnaire, does not. That's just that quick and dirty. Yeah. Um, that it's just kind of a screening tool with a cutoff score. And so you would, I mean, you could look at the yes and no questions and see what they're having trouble with, but it doesn't. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing that the, um, some of the other ones probably do, like in the manual, but mm -hmm. I don't really know offhand. Um, that I mean, the GARS, it breaks it up. I know that the two is in the three different categories, the social, the repetitive, and the communication. 
or the, the, the two is have those three categories, and then the three um, has a couple more. I think there's like a pragmatics, I can't remember. <laughs> but so I guess so that could kind of help focus a little bit. But I think a lot of times with, with that type of stuff, you already know, I mean, it's a blatant child really struggles with social interactions or pragmatic or, or, or whatnot. So it's not a huge help because those categories are so broad, I guess, there. Mm -hmm. um. Number six was, uh, or wait, number five was the ASRS, Autism Spectrum Rating Scale. And we don't have that one. That one was uh, created by Naglieri and another guy, which I thought was cool. Um, and that's based on the DSM-5, or been updated for the DSM-5 criteria. So that one got three votes, or five, four votes. Uh, the ASDS got three votes. And the MCHAT, two votes. That's for um, toddlers, though, so... I'm assuming, Rachel, you said you used that one before, right? I've used it before. I mean, it's just, and it's free, it's online. Um, you can get the questions online, so it kind of helps. I've got a couple kind of questionnaires that um, I might give to parents to help drive my evaluation so I know what I'm looking for type of thing, um, and that, that kind of helps a little bit. Cool. And we have zero votes for people that use no scale. Just saying. We like our assessment tools. And there's that. Most but we also, kind of require you to use something. I mean, you have to use. Yeah, <laughs> and one person made a comment as well. Um, Kat said the VB Math, the Verbal Behavior Milestones Assessment pl Placement Programming. Sorry, I, I can't read my own handwriting. But the VB Math she uses to inform interventions and help develop treatment plans in her settings. So I thought that was cool. I haven't heard of the VB Math, but hey, more acronyms the better. <laughs> but I, I feel that it's important with. Autism. Or I want to say in my states we my state we say AU as an abbreviation for autism. I know that Anna. I don't think in New York they do that. At least when I was there. So no, no. A, the AU that's all you. <laughs> North Carolina calls it AU. Um, Texas calls it AU. I don't think Nevada does. Or, or New York. So but yeah, when I talk <laughs> after moving to North Carolina, I remember having a conversation with Anna saying, "Oh, I've got you know an AU room in my, in my building." And da da da. She was like. What? <laughs> what is that? Just the terminology difference. Um, I know I totally lost my train of thought because I went on that tangent. there. I'm <laughs> probably going to say, you know, you do your rating scale, but you also have to use your uh, own opinion, right? Your yeah. own observations and your own judgment. With those other professionals in your school, I mean, the, the speech path is such a huge mm -hmm. resource, and they can do kind of that pragmatics evaluation. They've got a couple of standardized measures. They can use some as the castle or or some of the um, you know, communication scales and things like that that'll give you an idea of where that pragmatic language gets in. I mean, they really are super knowledgeable, so I'm always, always, always in close contact with the speech pathologist whenever I'm doing an evaluation. Um, OTs are very useful, too, with their knowledge of sensory functioning. So. Mm -hmm.
that's super informative, um, I think. Very cool. All right, so child on the autism spectrum, tons of research-based interventions, which Rebecca, you mentioned, is growing and growing and growing. So we also have such a wide umbrella of kids that we see and we service in different settings. You know, you're in a private school with kids who are doing very well academically and don't have a lot of special education classifications or labels or whatever. And I'm in a, a setting where the kids I work with are developmentally 12 months to, you know, a little bit below where they should be kind of thing. So I get like the lower kids. So um, I love the speech path comment that you made, Rach, because they are awesome. And of course, the social thinking, there's some so great social thinking curriculum out there, like Superflex, I love to use that. And um, Social Detective is something that I've used with some of my higher kids. Um, what do you guys like to use with your kids? Rebecca, what do you like, the higher functioning kiddos? Uh, I, I, I like, I prefer working um, on social communication and, and all of that in groups if I can. So I generally have, um, I, I generally have sort of mixed levels of kids in groups and um, work on, you know, all those things um, with activities or, or role plays or I, I do use the social thinking think sheets sometimes and, and things like that. Um, but I, I, I do find that um, because I'm in a private school and we don't have uh, labels or, um, you know, IEPs, we, we, sort, we have our own sort of version of our, our, our TI, but um, we, don't, we don't have that. So what, what I encounter sometimes is that kids can kind of, get in trouble for things that in a public school might be a manifestation of their disability and we since we don't have that um, that's kind of a big part of my role in the private school is to try to um, help teachers understand that because a child might be a very literal thinker it doesn't mean that um, he was purposely being disrespectful or that he's um, being sort of disobedient and not following that's a, a a, a issue, an issue for me in the private school system that, um, you know, it's not, it's, especially with really bright, high-functioning, academically successful kids, sometimes it feels like, you know, that this child is just purposely defiant or, you know, or knew, was trying to get attention or, and that, those kinds of things. So I find myself uh, working sort of as an advocate for um, you know, for this individual child. Okay, very cool. I know on the list there's some things that are really easier to do than others, like social skills training, like doing a social skills group. Those are fun, yeah. and I think pretty pretty easy. You get some kids together, and, and you work on some specific skills. Um, some things that are more challenging is FBAs and BIPs, although effective. Yeah can be more difficult to actually implement um, the team. And then uh, one of the things that I thought was really cool but that I haven't been able to do yet is video modeling and that's been out for a while and you know we just got iPads in some of my classrooms and it's something that's possible but it's it's difficult. <laughs> it's difficult to get, you know, that you gotta get the releases and all these things and get the kids to behave in a certain way to videotape them and edit it and all that stuff. So I think that's really cool. But that's something I haven't been able to do yet. Have you guys ever seen video modeling in, in your settings? No. Oh, no. I have not. 
Oh. I'm wondering if you guys, we had a, um, one of our questions was about, especially about sensory issues that sometimes, um, you know, teachers describe the sensory needs and putting kids on, sen and maybe an occupational therapist will say put a student on sensory diet. So um, this school psych feels like he would rather kind of start, go backwards and do an FBA first. And um, how do you guys address how do you guys address sensory needs if you don't have, I don't know if you have OTs um, in your building. I We do sometimes, but not always. So um, the way I do work with kids with sensory needs is try to have them become more aware of their, their own sensory needs and be able to, you know, ask for a break or, or try to um, find a strategy that helps them understand that how they're feeling and, and what they're going through. But... Um, sensory diet is a, something that the uh, that an OT would do right. and, and bring to the team and share with us, but that's not something I do. Do you guys ever do that? No, I've worked in collaboration with OTs to find strategies for kids, but you know, there's a, a process. The kid has to have an OT evaluation and that has to be approved and has to go on their IEP for a certain level of service before that stuff can even be tried, and that's a pretty big barrier, and it's, it costs money to do these things, you know? So, like, with my, with my kids, I mean, exercise was one of the evidence-based practices, right? Exercise is good for so many reasons, and exercise can provide some sensory feedback, depending on what it is. So, I don't know if you guys have heard of, like, Brain Gym, and the kids do Brain Gym, and um, Just Dance on YouTube, <laughs> on YouTube, and the kids will do, like, the Just Dance dance, like, <laughs> you know? Um, so, in one of the classes I work in, they do four dances a day. Okay, and if they work in, they do like two brain gym dances a day, or brain gym songs, whatever you want to call it. So having those movement breaks built into the class for the whole class, like Go Noodle for the younger kids, Go Noodle Locks, right? Yeah. More <laughs> just the um, movement breaks in there. They have the breathing breaks and all this other good stuff that's good for a, a wider variety of emotional problems. And if you get a kid to engage in some breathing, that is always a good thing. Um, so I think um, having teachers gain from more of like a class-wide intervention, whether it's like making fidgets. I've, you know, had a fidget push-in where we make a fidget for every kid in the class with like a latex-free glove and we fill it with flour or whatever, like that kind of thing. If a kid can have some access to some, like moving, you know, the movement break without actually going through that whole sensory diet thing, I think that would be preferred because um, that's challenging. <laughs> I think that we need to remember too. I mean, OTs, um, at least where I've worked, you're not, they're not a required part of the evaluation team. Although mm. I think their input um, is for sure useful. That um, so, sometimes you know it can be addressed through us. I kind of I try my my couple strategies and interventions and things. And if I'm kind of like, mm, you know, this is more than I can handle, um, I'm pushing it on to the OT type of thing. But yeah, we do, um, or have done uh, fidgets, and in kind of some of our, our lower functioning settings, kind of uh, toys that light up things for visual, um, you know, the water bottles with like glitter and different colors in it that you can turn it over and see it kind of swirl and, and mm -hmm. like that. Um, we've had sensory rooms in some of the schools that I've worked in where there's pillows and bean bags and they, you know, tunnels that they can climb through and the lights are dim um, and they have access to, you know, squishy balls and fans and all sorts of uh, different things just to help calm them down and blankets and uh, 
weighted vests or weighted, you know, blankets to help keep that, that sensory functioning um, under control. So, I mean, there's things for sure that I think that a school psychologist can do as long as your school kind of has those resources uh, without without getting the OT involved. It can be through, um, you know, if I do an FBA and see that sensory functioning is for sure what's going on, that, you know, I kind of tackle that first. I might do a consult with the OT, but not necessarily a full-blown OT eval unless the team feels it's needed. Right. And uh, our, um, one of the comments was that um, the sensory diet and the brain gym and those kinds of um, interventions are not, not yet, perhaps, evidence-based practices, but they are quite often um, things that you know, professionals in the building might try. That, that is interesting to me, the, the whole, um, even sensory processing disorder, and the um, if that's a disorder or if it's not, and, um, certainly I have parents who bring me OT evaluations and say my child has sensory processing disorder. Yet, you know, for us it's not uh, in the DSM. So, um, but I, I don't know. I think I do think that there are people that say that um, sensory diet. Has evidence, has a lot of evidence, and I, I, I mean, I'm not, sh I'm not sure if it's gained more, if there's, if the research just hasn't been done, or if um, they're just smaller studies. I'm not really sure. Yeah, but it's an interesting point. Yeah, and I think that's a concern across the board in just the field of education that we definitely do a lot of things mm -hmm. that we we jump on board really quickly because we want to do do the next greatest biggest thing that seems to be working at this school over here or this school over here. And so we want to do it too, and then a couple of years down the line, we, some of the actual research comes out, and eh, maybe it really didn't. That didn't work at all, right? But I think it, our role in progress monitoring could just tell us, well, if mm -hmm. I give this child a fidget, does that reduce the times that he gets up and walks around the room, or you know, um, does that help him attend to you know the Whole, whole group instruction. So I think progress monitoring from our end is really important because even if we are using an evidence-based practice, you need to make sure that it works for that child. Right, and there's so much comorbidity out there. Like I, a lot of the kids I work with, you know, suffer from depression in addition to having autism or have um, mental illness of other sorts and ADHD diagnoses up the wazoo. You know, there's often so many factors going on. It can be really difficult to figure out what to do, but if you go by the individual child and, and track what's working, that's definitely the best thing to do. As far as other research-based interventions, um, visual supports was one that I like to use a lot, and using some visual supports, um, like a visual schedule um, for students to help them um, with providing more structure. Something I like a lot to do a lot, like, um, oops, like for counseling, I might have like a strip of the visual picture so the child knows like this is what we're going to do in counseling today and then we're going to go back to the classroom so they know what to expect. Um, another thing I like with visuals is um, to teach some coping strategies. Like they say CBT is research based, right? But if you get a low functioning kid, um, they can't talk about their thoughts, they can't identify their thoughts. We're really working on identifying feelings at a really basic level and then identifying some strategies um, besides like, you know, 
beating the crap out of someone, that kind of thing, to um, deal with those feelings. So, like, I'll have, like, a different, like, a coping strategy to be able, you know, do you want to bounce on a ball? Do you want to go for a walk? Like, just to be able to take a break and to, I mean, it's things we do every day. Like, if you're upset about something, you take a minute in the bathroom and you take a break. And it's important that kids learn how to do that. Another thing that um, was evidence-based on one of the articles was uh, speech-generating devices. And I'm finding a lot of success with that. And I know there's an expense with that. But with the kids that I work with, and it, there's a process that goes through Medicaid or whatever, and they get devices and you work on certain words and um, for them to be able to request and say, I want something instead of screaming or that kind of thing, I find a lot of success with the speech-generating devices and pairing that with counseling support uh, is something that I found to be very helpful. You guys see a lot of those devices where you work? Um, I did in North Carolina now uh, because I'm at the high school level. Um, not so much. Um, but yeah, a lot of times with uh, with my elementary school kids, I saw them more. So I mean, there are a couple. I mean, like Big Mac, I've seen Toby's, I've seen you know communication devices like that. Um, but I'm not super familiar with them. I just kind of. They're getting better. They're getting better. Like if you uh, like years ago, there was just like the Dynavox, and like that was it. But they're they're getting better, and there's better um, technology out there to help kids learn to communicate and to request what they want and to refuse appropriately. And that's a beautiful thing, just to be able to to say what you want. And so we can meet those needs because behavior is the result of an unmet need. You know what I'm saying? Um, any other um, thoughts on interventions that have worked for you guys? Um, one of our viewers just posted um, on the school site page an interesting article that I'm that I can't wait to read later. But it's because it's long. But it's sensory integration: a review of the current state of the, of evidence, cool. which I think was interesting to our um, earlier conversation. Right. Yeah. There's, there's definitely. I think hope out there, as even though the numbers continue to go to get higher and you know more people are identified as having autism, there's also more things out there and more different educational programs and different options. But I don't know about you guys, but I think that there's hope. Absolutely, there seems to be so much hope, and early intervention seems so so hopeful, and um, you know, uh, Lovas originally said. Um, that home-based early intervention or home-school-based early intervention should be 40 hours or more a week. Um, but now I think um, we have to wonder, is that 40 hours? Is that a part of a free and appropriate public education? Or is it, it I mean, I wonder what, what the research currently looks on, the intensity of early intervention, um, mm -hmm. and, and how much of that can schools take on? Yeah. Maybe. In special education, what, six, six and a half hours a day, five days a week? Right, right. Not six hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That effectiveness of early intervention brings up um, something that reminded me. We had a, a doctor, a local doctor, uh, in one of the districts that I was in, that he was just kind of known as, you know, if you went to him, you were going to come back with an autism diagnosis. We kind of joke mm -hmm. ourselves that, oh, it's so-and-so, okay, well, we know what the diagnosis is going to be. And then I heard somebody else say that, you know what, he said that the reason that he does that is he errs on the side of giving the child, because he dealt with young young children, um, 
a birth to three or so, um, that he erred on the side of caution and giving them that because he wanted them to receive all those services and qualify for the ABA therapy and all that stuff going on. And so when, once I thought of it that way, it's, it's kind of like, oh, I mean, maybe, maybe he's doing them a great service by, by giving them. I mean, then we have the problem down the line if, if it doesn't look like autism later of how do you kind of tackle that. But um, that thought of, you know, I just want these kids to get what they need and get the help that they need. Um, so um, we're running low on time. Uh, we do have a drive on our um, School Psych podcast page that viewers out there can check out. We have an autism folder and many, many other folders of resources and things that we've gathered over time. And of course, if you check out the School Psych page, there's constant links to constant resources that are coming in because things come out all the time and, you know, it's exciting. So um, should we wrap it up, ladies? Um, next month, in two weeks, we're going to meet again in two weeks. Sunday, May 17th, we have a very good guest because really, like, we're just scratching the surface here. Yeah. We have a BCBA, Dr. Christine Reeve, who will be joining us, and that's very exciting because, you know, there are people out there, like we mentioned autism specialists, there's um, BCBAs, there's all sorts of people out there who um, have a lot of knowledge and experience of and ideas, and we are excited to have her join us and continue to learn. Yeah, she has an awesome, awesome Facebook page, by the way, also, where she shares a lot of um, resources, and it's called Autism Classroom News, so check her out. We, I'm so excited that she's going to come on and talk to us next time, two weeks. Okay, well, thanks for joining us, you guys. It was good to see you, and thanks um, for those of you out there in the internet world who have posted and participated and watched and the link will be on YouTube. Yeah. Well, we'll again later. <laughs> All right. Bye. Thanks. All right, Good have night. A good night. Bye. Bye.